Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Thanks of democracy. Very good. <laughs> G'day and welcome to Democracy Sausage. The federal budget is looming and guess what? The money is flowing. Aged care, childcare, infrastructure, sectoral assistance, even tax cuts. In a quite remarkable shapeshift, which has been a work in progress for the past year, but has been more explicitly stated in the last weeks before this budget, the coalition has remade itself, morphing from fiscal grinch to cycle-flattening Keynesian. This is driven by economic realities and, let's be frank, by political ones too. Remember, there was going to be an election later this year, according to many in the commentariat, but it's been a rocky road in 2021 for the government, so unpopular budget repair via spending cuts, etc., has been officially ruled out, well, for now anyway. We'll come back to this, but first, let's talk about Scott Morrison's religion, because I think many Australians would have found it, well, odd to hear their PM talking about receiving messages from God through a picture of an eagle, claiming that he and his wife Jan are servants of God, and admitting that he is doing something other than straight comforting when he touches people in tragic situations like bushfires and floods and the like. And of course, mentioning the evil one, Satan presumably, uh, who also uses social media, apparently. Well, that bit's probably true. I'm joined by two of the best to discuss these issues, Dr. Maria Teflaga from ANU's celebrated School of Politics and International Relations, and Peter Martin, who is Business and Economy Editor of The Conversation, and he's also a visiting fellow at the Crawford School of Public Policy here at ANU. Welcome to you both. Hello. G'day. You're both well known to this podcast, Maria, uh, as, a, um, as a staple of it, uh, currently on maternity leave, but... Um, you know, so our listeners would know you quite well. Just on this question of faith and in the interest of, you know, some level of disclosure, I'm correct in saying you're both people of faith in some degree? Oh, well, I grew up um, Orthodox uh, Christian and, and actually just had Easter on uh, on Sunday. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's, I, I, had, that. I had Easter earlier, um, Maria, but uh, 
I did go to a uh, Good Friday service and uh, I go to my Anglican church. Um, of course, there are Anglicans and Anglicans and there are Pentecostals and Pentecostals. Yes. So it doesn't necessarily mean I'd, uh, I'd uh, agree with uh, everything that goes on at the uh, Hillsong-style churches that Scott Morrison goes to. Yeah, or any others. But I just thought it was important to… Uh, what about you, Mark? Uh, well, I, I I grew up in a Christian household. Uh, I had a uh, I went to a Catholic school for a period of time. I can't say I was overly fond of it. it felt more like a borstal to me. But uh, anyway, um, you I better no, translate no, I, that for me. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to admit well, ignorance. Okay, well, it, it felt like a correctional institution for wayward youth <laughs> and wayward men. You weren't even wayward then. No, I know. I'm only wayward now. Um, it wasn't exactly the relationship with Christianity that uh, I would have thought was likely to work with someone like me. Anyway, it didn't, and uh, I would say I'm not a person of faith, but I, I'm, I, I just wanted to sort of have that out on the table just because I think it, we need to be careful here. There are lots of people who, as you said, Peter, who are... Um, have faith, uh, but will have some some critique of the prime minister's interpretation of it, and uh, there, there'll be others who, you know, absolutely whether they agree with him or not, defend his right to do it. And in fact, I I was on uh, Richard Glover's program on uh, on the ABC as I am each week uh, last week when this story kind of broke, and I made the point that we do like to see uh, and understand who our our leaders are. There's nothing wrong intrinsically with finding out that, you know, they, you know, someone holds a particular set of beliefs or, uh, or, or that, or, or to, or to learn more about what their beliefs are. We knew, for maybe, example. Maybe, maybe not, Mark. I, I'm, I'm not so sure. I, well, we knew he was a Christian, right? So we now just get some more details. Yeah, but I think when you become prime minister, you no longer, um, you leave your, your sort of uh, your old clothes at the door. Mm. That is your job as prime minister is to run secular institutions mm. in a country whose laws are secular. And that essentially, I mean, you know, critique of Rudd and, uh, you know, Nick Greiner in New South Wales and all sorts of politicians is that they're managerialist. That is uh, Turnbull, that they... Uh, they weigh up the evidence and decide what's best to do. That's actually is the job of the prime minister, um, and, and unless of course there's a there's a, a you know particular vision which has been set out uh, to the public, which they've gone to an election on, or, or which they've made quite clear. But uh, we don't expect uh, while we know that. People, uh, members of, of various faiths, or you know, or members of no faith, we don't expect that to influence their decisions. Or am I being too sort of? I think you're being word, a bit naive uh, there, Peter. Formal. Yeah, well, naive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I see. I got this from social studies, right? I got this from, <laughs> which is a South Australian term, Maria. So I'll have to <laughs> uh, right. translate for you. But yeah. Both the, Peter and I understand what yeah, social South studies. South Australia uh, education system. So. These, this is what you were taught, that you, you, there was no mention of religion. What there was was that we elected someone to represent us, govern in our interests, and if we didn't think they did, then they kicked them out. Straightforward. Call it naive. It's 
not a bad working model for what usually happens. Oh yeah, sure. I, I don't. I don't disagree that it's not a bad working model, especially in a, in a country like Australia that explicitly did seek to separate church and state. But I think the the reality of the sort of Protestant hegemony that that defined Australian politics, um, you know, almost overwhelmingly till the mid '60s, kind of meant that these things didn't really need to be said. I mean, um, Menzies is famous for having uh, one Catholic in his cabinet. And uh, there's a, a famous story of him, uh, you know, sitting around with his Protestant cabinet ministers. And I've forgotten the name of this uh, Catholic minister, unfortunately. Apologies. Uh, but he, you know, th- this minister comes up to them and, and Menzies, before he arrives, sort of says, here comes the papist. Uh, you know, if we look at, if we look <laughs> at the way that sectarianism um, drove uh, Australian politics, again, like well into the sort of 60s, uh, between Catholics and Protestants, uh, you know, Labor. Yeah, so there's this whole history. Yeah, yeah, right. and, and I guess that's my that's sort of I guess that's sort of my point is that I think most I think I think there is an element of um, I guess distaste uh, around Pentecostalism because it is an evangelical it is a new sect. You know, I can imagine that the chances of Scott Morrison being elected 50 years ago would actually be almost approaching zero because he was a Pentecostal, right, rather than today where it's sort of kind of can be sort of shoved off as a, as, a, as a private matter. But I do think that if you're prime minister and, you know, you, you say that religion is the core of, of what you believe, then I think voters actually kind of deserve to have an articulation from the prime minister of, uh, you know, what those beliefs are, how they kind of reflect his life story. But we didn't get I it know. before we elected that's him. That's right. That's right. You know, and I think I think that is sort of um, part of it. But I guess what I'm sort of, I think I think there's two issues here really, is that the, the prime minister has sort of argued that he doesn't want to say what his faith is because he thinks he will be misjudged. Right. Um, and part of the reason for that is because there is clearly distaste around Pentecostalism, perhaps more so than the sort of distaste around Abbott's Catholicism, right? From a few, from a few years back. Like, I, th- I think it's hard to argue that some, some of the critique of him, um, is just kind of just sort of prejudice against this sort of, um, new form of religion but that i don't think is actually a good enough excuse to for him to sort of say that he doesn't need to explain what his actual beliefs are given yeah my complaint yeah. Uh, is with the way is what he's said and what he's said is in that uh, speech which is sort of leaked out is now this was I uh, just just for yeah. the sake of those people who either haven't heard this story or perhaps are listening overseas. This was a speech to the Australian Christian Churches Conference on the Gold Coast, where he sort of you know told some stories about where he draws his inspiration from. He gave an indication of how uh, he relates to God, of how he interprets what he and his wife Jen are doing. You know, he he talks about them essentially being servants of God, uh, which some people might have some. Some people might think, well, that's kind of what all Christians say, but at another level you're talking about, as, as I think you're saying, Peter, you're talking about the Prime Minister and having very special responsibilities. He was talking about how many there are of us. Yeah. 
That's right. In key That's uh, right. subtext infiltrated That's right. into and key it, positions of us as if yeah. as if this was the work of spies infiltrating their way into the yeah, Australian Yeah, that's government. right, and that there was this sort of unspoken moral code that it's, it's a bit hard to fully get your hands around. Like the around. Masons, obviously, not yeah. like the Masons. but That's right, He and he, admit, he admitted, as I said in the introduction, that when he counsels people, gives consolation to people at uh, natural disasters or whatever, that he might hug them. And, you know, it's standard sort of stuff we see political leaders do these days, come up, embrace someone. He said, well, what he's actually doing is laying his hands on them in a kind of a a, a very denominational way, a very religious sort of gestural way, not telling them about it, but that's what he's doing and saying a prayer for them. Well, I I think some people will say, listen, keep keep, Yeah, praying for people is, I guess, that's that's entirely within your kind of mind, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't infringe their rights per se. But I think it does go to, I mean, people are entitled then to think about, well, how, how, what, how, how does this play out in policy? How does it sit with um, some of the harsher policies the government's been associated with, and Scott Morrison in particular, Operation Sovereign Borders, the absolute uh, um, insistence that no one who arrives here by boat can be treated essentially with their proper human rights. They are sent to third country detention centres, uh, denied their human rights, as has been well documented. Uh, many people are uncomfortable with that and they'd say, well, where does your Christianity sit with that? So there's there's those kinds of things. But also the reference to the evil one and social media, I made light of it before, but I mean, this kind of literal believing in the devil, I think, is quite revealing. We have had, as, as I think Maria is getting at, we have had many Christian prime ministers in the past. And when there was this uh, Protestant hegemony, as, as you describe it, Maria, it was almost so dominant that it didn't need to be mentioned. Well, exactly. Essentially, all of our prime ministers, it's a bit like being white, right? You know, and you get the sort of all, uh, all lives matter, black lives matter, all lives matter debate. Um, the, you know, there was just an assumption that you were Christian and that you went to church. The, the, they say the Lord's Prayer, a Christian prayer at the at the commencement of Parliament. They still do it even which though we are. Which they probably should not. Which they probably should not because of that very separation of church and state that we're meant to embrace. Um, but, you know, we, we, we have this uh, situation now where we have a Prime Minister who's kind of, um, you know, uh, who's – who subscribes to all of these things and we're gradually bit by bit finding out about it. I think an important final thing to say here is that he addressed this conference. He did so on the, you know, travelled there on the Prime Ministerial plane. I've no problem with that because I think Prime Ministers are Prime Ministers wherever they are in the nation. But he did not put out a transcript. He did not put out a media advisement about, uh, about the fact that he was giving this address. That makes it a private matter and a private matter paid for on the public purse. So there's an inconsistency there. It's a bit like there's a little bit of the Hawaii trip during the bushfires about this. I don't want to tell anyone about it. I'm hoping it doesn't come up in the media. And, and by and the so way, forth. how stupid were both? Well, yeah. I mean, to imagine that people aren't going to find out. Because that's not the way it is with prime ministers. That's why I don't have, and many of us don't have, a problem with prime ministers essentially using the private plane, the whole, you know, the, the publicly funded prime ministerial plane for whatever, because... Wherever they go in the country, they are the prime minister and they are representing 
that job and they are interacting with Australians, you know, with, with, with I citizens. I think that's actually the, the, the nub of the problem. It's the unwillingness to explain an account. I mean, you know, say what you like about Tony Abbott, um, if you didn't agree with him, he at least uh, was prepared to explain and account for his system of belief and to justify his views. I mean, from what we have seen of what Co- Scott Morrison has sort of said, it it is kind of incoherent. Um, so, and I in some ways I kind of question whether it does really translate into policy outcomes given, you know, um, it seems like the Prime Minister believes in individuals but also communities, but they seem to be mutually exclusive, but it seems to be the communities he likes. Like it doesn't really make much sense. I think it actually is consistent um, with that uh, Hillsong Pentecostal way of thinking, uh, uh, Father I think it's Brian Houston, one of uh, the man Scott Morrison uh, apparently tried to get into the White House on one of his visits, his uh, his pastor. Um, he, and the White House rejected him as being yeah, un- un- unsound unsuitable. because of yeah. uh, uh, various things that had happened in his church. Um, he, he wrote a book. The Trump White House rejected him as wacky. <laughs> I mean, think about that. He wrote a book called, although to be fair, it was probably the uh, the people, the bureaucrats under Trump who, who, who did that. <laughs> he, he wrote a book entitled You Need More Money. And this is very consistent yeah. with, with what Scott Morrison says about getting ahead, about individualism, not about community. You don't hear much about that. You do, and getting ahead, by the way, makes no sense. Unless you're getting ahead of someone, right? Mm. I mean, that, that's what it is. Um, that's consistent with what he said, uh, and I've followed him very closely since he's been treasurer and now prime minister. It's, it's all about, um, lower tax, rewarding the individual. This is the kind of thing which Success. is spoken about in this church. I know, but is, right? how different is that from what Liberal Party people have been saying since the year dot? You, do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I, I oh, don't. Well, that's yeah, true. I don't deny that there but it aren't is diff- It is different. It is different from the uh, broader characterization of Christianity as uh, uh, the last shall be the first. Yeah, and so on, right? that I so, agree so with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's consistent with his particular strand of Christianity. Well, I think to be fair, he did uh, address that to some extent in the in the comments that he made to this conference, where he he seemed to stress some of the stronger community angle of it rather than the individual angle of it. Uh, I think in in Morrison's defence that should be noted um, because that is an objectionable, to me anyway, a very objectionable kind of strand of Pentecostalism, this whole kind of individualism and success and wealth creation being sort of somehow intrinsically morally good. Um, He had it. As as treasurer, he had it. Um, I think if Christianity has very solid foundations, its its most admirable qualities are, you know, those the last should be first. You know, the um, uh, look, you know, charity to the poor, selflessness, uh, helping others, uh, humility. You you did learn something, didn't you? (laughs) I'm not saying saying everything's wrong with it. I'm just saying I don't believe in God. It's it it stayed with you. But my view is, and I'll be interested to know what you think about this in particular, Maria, that when you are prime minister, perhaps not before, you leave those things at the door. That is to say, you don't, in fact, let them uh, guide your decisions. You are, on the whole, guided by evidence. Uh, LBJ, uh, Lyndon Barnes Johnson, US president, uh, after the assassination of uh, 
John F. Kennedy, famously said as soon as he had got the job that he no longer needed to represent the people who had got in there, the, the electors mm. of the South. and he, Even though he was the one that came up with that saying you must dance with the one that brung you. Yeah, but as soon as, soon as he got the job, he realised he was president. He no longer needed those people. There's a great story about how he told Martin Luther King that I'm um, free, free at last. I can <laughs> lobby for the Civil Rights Act because it is what uh, the nation needs, what the party needs, and uh, where I come from is no longer relevant. In other words, I would well, He was a Southern you, Democrat you had, who was had, locked into I'd, I'd expect a Prime Minister, Maria, yeah. to leave their who they are and who brung them there yeah. at the door when they get well, the job. Well, you have hit on one of the oldest debates in political science, which is between um, delegates and, and trustees. So, i.e., should, mm-hmm. should representatives be delegates of the representatives, right? So, you know, if my constituency votes for gay marriage, I vote for gay marriage. Or trustees, you know, my constituents have elected me and my good judgment to vote how I choose on gay marriage. And uh, Which is Edmund Burke's original conception, pre- yes, isn't it? Yes, precisely. And so that is why it's one of the oldest dilemmas in, um, in, in political science. And I mean, like, I, you know, I think in a secular country um, like Australia, which does have obviously very deep Judeo-Christian roots, like it's everywhere. You know, I think there is an obligation for um, the Prime Minister to govern for everyone, particularly as the sort of religious composition of this country uh, changes. I think only... I see it like the Speaker, by the way. we The Speaker represents, uh, as an MP, the constituents, and as soon as the Speaker of the House becomes the Speaker of the House, if they're good, and in the UK they even have an agreement where they... Uh, don't stand candidates against the speaker to make sure this happens. If that, if the speaker is good, the speaker does the speaker's job, and it doesn't matter who brung them, doesn't matter who elected them. I see when you cross the prime minister's door. I hesitate to use the U.S. president as an example, but uh, when you cross that door, you become, or you, you should become. Uh, someone who governs for everyone. So, I mean, I guess, I th- you know, th- I think that sounds good intrinsically, you know, but I guess I think what is actually more important is that prime ministers explain their decisions, you know. I mean, I think, and, and where the consequences of that, and, and I think we can sort of see that, you know, Morrison, Rudd, Abbott have all kind of had to account for their belief systems, and I think that's sort of fit and proper, but I think to ask them not to have to be able to completely divorce themselves from that, I think I think that actually may kind of create space for them to sort of say, well, I am being neutral and and not have to explain. And I think that is Do you is mean to be dishonest in a way? Do you mean to dress possibly. up what in fact comes from their beliefs well, as uh, as if it's the result of uh, doing the best thing well, by the Well, that's right, electorate. whether knowingly or, or um, you know, unknowingly, right? You know, because we've all got prejudices and, and biases and, and filters, which is that 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 sort of point that we were making about the prosperity gospel aligning quite nicely with some aspects of Liberal Party rhetoric over the last 25 years. Less tax. Indeed. Let's take a quick break and and come back in a moment, Maria. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, sorry, I think I sort of cut you off there, Maria. You were talking about identity politics, I think, and uh, the the way that this is constructed within the coalition. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that sort of came out last week uh, was Scott Morrison talking about how identity politics is, is a real issue. And I think this is quite fascinating because if you think about it, identities are structured uh throughout politics since since essentially you had two people disagree on on any kind of matter i mean what is class politics if not identity politics you can't be working class unless you identify as such you can't be middle class unless you identify as such right um and i think it's been it's really clever the way that the coalition has effectively been able to kind of cast aside any um, group of people that has sought to kind of critique, I guess, what is sort of seen as the default options we were sort of talking about before, you know, Mm. being Protestant or being a man or, you know, being white or whatever it is, to kind of critique the way those identities are are structured. And that becomes identity politics. But but whatever is, you know, essentially... Yeah, the pejorative of identity politics. Precisely. And whatever is is considered, you know, the mainstream, to use an old Howardism, is not identity politics, is somehow neutral. And, you know, Mm. I think... I think that is in itself, um, you know, an interesting idea that really does actually need to be picked apart. And I don't think it's healthy for our polity to sort of accept this idea that, you know, people complaining about race or gender are pursuing identity politics, but people who are pursuing, you know, essentially good old-fashioned Australian values aren't pursuing identity politics. Of course they are. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the uh, you know discussion only two weeks ago that the Prime Minister himself started where he talked about net zero by 2050 won't be achieved in the cafes, wine bars and dinner parties of the inner cities. There was a sort of – this and is – And by the way, he was speaking in a plush hotel yeah. in an inner city where yeah. wine was being served. Yeah, over, over some very expensive glasses of Chardonnay. Business Council of Australia. Exactly, to the wine. top end of town. To the top end of town. But, but you know, the, the trope there that you could hear, it was sort of like a dog whistle that essentially valid, mainstream, ordinary, orthodox, dare I say, legitimate, authentic Australians are the ones who are not sitting in those places, who don't even live in the inner cities. And, you know, they wear high-vis vests and they're essentially male. It's almost like a trope that's not being being sort of uh, explicitly detailed, but uh, by exclusion, by saying, you know, all of these people who are talking about uh, climate change, for example, they're not really fully legitimately Australian. He he has a very clear idea of what is legitimate, which he summed up in the the phrase quiet Australians. And uh, he's explained explained to me over some wines at at, at, uh, I think it was at uh, a midwinter ball that he, he got the idea uh, was it a uh, at a barbecue or anyway in a in a park seeing all of these 
ordinary Australians, well, ordinary in in the sense uh, of you know families like his, um, and thinking what what interests them, and this is, I mean, in one sense, it's marketing genius. Mm. It's knowing who your audience is happens to have got him over the line in an election. So, um, you know, uh, four marks for that. He has a very clear view of who, uh, or if you like, the the uh, the true or the representative mm. or the core Australians. And uh, he he talks about now whether it's anything to do with his faith. I don't know. But... Um, well, it plays back into his faith quite interestingly here, I think, because Probably the same because kind of people who go to that church, perhaps. But I think there is there is the worry for him that it's probably not as well. You know, yes, he doesn't. He goes to the Horizon Church in the Shire, which is you know suburban, and there's there are these uh, Pentecostal churches in the suburbs now, in the sort of outer suburbs, particularly of the major cities. Um, but I think. As Maria said at the start, I think, you know, when we're talking about his fear about this religion is that it is sufficiently non-mainstream in some of its uh, yeah, feelings. Mean he recognises that as well. Yeah, he's a bit nervous about it, which is why he's never really explicitly detailed it and uh, it's why there was this instinct to, to, you know, go to this conference, to talk to it, to be honest on this stage and we've seen those pictures of him that, uh, you know, he, he allowed cameras in to the, to the church in, uh, during the election campaign in 2019, uh, which as someone pointed out, I think it might have been Frank Bongiorno pointed out, you know, explicitly allowed him to continue campaigning through Easter, I think it was. Um, but, uh, you know, that was a rare insight, seeing the, the Prime Minister or, the, yeah, he was Prime Minister at the time and he was seeking to continue to be Prime Minister, um, you know, chanting and, 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 and engaging in, in the, the gestures of worship that, don't seem, going to your point, I guess, Peter, don't seem all that prime ministerial. But also they're not that mainstream. Christianity's mainstream, but this version of it has elements to it which are, which do feel American and which do feel sort of strangely uh, theatrical and uh, not quite of the restrained order that we're used to. Um, and, and Maria, you know, we've had all, almost all of our prime ministers have been Christians, I think Alfred Deakin, the um, Whitlam uh, famously wasn't a fellow traveller. Yeah, said. yeah, that's right. And Hawke wasn't, and Gillard explicitly wasn't. But and I was going to say Alfred Deakin, Prime Minister, about three times between 1903 and 1910, he believed in spiritualism and Ouija boards, Ouija boards, and and, and those sort of things. So, along presumably with some level of Christianity, I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but. It's that there's just that sort of expectation is sort of almost like, um, you know, they speak English, they are Christian. That's that's the difference. What is interesting to, to me about the way this debate around identity politics is sort of structured is that effectively – you know the, this critique of, of people who who peddle identity politics. It's it's sort of playing the man rather than the argument. Yes. If that makes sense. Yes. You know, like um, people are being attacked because they they dare they dare to sort of um, suggest that not everything is right in the sort of suburban barbecue backyard of the quiet Australian, for example. And um, it's kind of corrosive to like le- legitimacy of of having um, debate, right? It's illiberal. And, well, it it's is. Illiberal. It is exactly illiberal, right? It's quite conservative, but it is illiberal. Yes, absolutely. And, and here I we think are critiquing is- China for autocracy, and we have we have a, a kind of a 
you know, a debate running at from officialdom, which is essentially suggesting these are the positions you ought to have. You ought to not complain about our sluggishness in the environment. You ought to not complain about our treatment of asylum seekers. You ought to not complain about the underrepresentation of women in politics and their treatment. To, to, to be fair to Morrison, he won't thank me for this. He, he, he was actually doing something quite complicated there. He was staging a uh, big move towards zero emissions by uh, 2050. Uh, he was abandoning coal and doing this as sort of cover to say, yeah, yeah I'm still with you, still got the dog whistles, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't support these Chardonnay sippers, but um, uh, we're, we're not going to build a coal-fired power station, we may not even build a gas one, and uh, we're uh, inching closer through technology to zero twenty emissions, but I'm still with you, I'm still, uh, you know, the Nats, don't be worried. I, I, I think it required some skill to do that. Yeah, so. that's true. And we get that kind of double double track messaging from from senior politicians quite a lot. And I guess it's part of the artifice of politics. And it, it can be quite annoying as well. Maria, just before we go to the budget, I want to ask you a, a final question on this. Um, how do you think his references to, you know, him with a capital H, this is Morrison's references to him with a capital H as God, uh, his references to the, references to the evil one, um, you know, it's sort of talking about Satan or the devil. Uh, how do you think these sorts of things, I suppose this goes to what we were just discussing, but how do you think these sorts of things square with the other part of his imaging, which is the sort of daggy dad, the, the, the guy that enjoys, you know, Flathead and chips at the you know down the coast, and who uh, wears the baseball cap and likes the sharkies and and all of that. So I think there are, there are sort of two points here. The, the first one is, you know, for, for people who are deeply sort of secular and progressive, I think all of these things are highly disturbing. Um, you know, I think for people that are uh, religious and of faith, I mean, I asked my mum about this, as she's a lot more religious than I am, and I mean, she sort of felt that you know, like. She thought it was good that he had a faith and, um, you know, could admire him for that. But she felt that those specific statements were perhaps a bit arrogant and uh, a sin in themselves. And I I think that's sort of the the point I was trying to make before about, like, there's no way that he would have been electable 50 years ago because this is such a radical Christian sect. Um, And I think there is a bit of a squeamishness about it. But I think the sort of other point that is sort of underlying our discussion is the way that recruiting within the Liberal Party is increasingly moving into organized churches mm. uh, as, as sort of, you know, uh, fruitful grounds of people who are organized and committed and motivated and will turn up to party functions and, you know, essentially allow the kind of unfortunate play of machine politics that we, that we have now. And, and I think that was this sort of other aspect that Peter highlighted at the beginning, which was this sort of idea of the Liberal Party as an institution is, is perhaps coming a sort of slightly different entity to what it might have been even 10 or 15 years ago and how that may or may not align with, you know, the broad sort of middle Australia yeah. that votes for them. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point because we have learned through all of this uh, and through Nikki Savas' book, uh, what was it called, Gods and Prayers or Plots and Prayers, yeah, um, which was deliberately titled to, uh, you know, kind of make the point that there are, there are kind of these two hemispheres to the way Morrison became prime minister. There was plotting. There was even strategic voting by some Morrison supporters to sort of see off Turnbull, ensure that Dutton 
was the other candidate, and then Morrison could then those votes could return to Morrison. So there's a kind of you know, very cunning plotting there. But there's also the use of the prayer group. You know, Stuart Robert, uh, his very close mate, Brother Stewie as he calls him, uh, and others who attend a, a prayer group. And it's very, it's very devout and in a sense quite foreign to our politics. I think it goes back to very well to Peter's point actually, opening points about, you know, the, the kind of bleeding of these kinds of practices into the actual, uh, you know, the machinery of politics itself. I'm, I'm going to, um, just finish off this just by giving uh, people who uh, who are interested uh, a sense of of how strange this is because during the 2019 election campaign and this is something he revealed in the uh, the speech to the uh, Australian Christian Churches conference on the Gold Coast he actually explains that he was going in through a tough period in that 2019 election campaign, the one we now know he won and which subsequently he called a miracle. Um, but it, it certainly didn't look like he was going to win it all the way through. And during a particularly tough period, he, 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 you know, said a prayer and asked God for a, for a sign. He said he could use one right now. And then he found himself staring at a, at a large photo of a soaring eagle, um, at a, at a, some sort of um, art museum that he was at, uh, and he said, and these are his words, and bear in mind that he uses his own name in this quote. These were his words. He said, the message I got that day was, quote, Scott, you've got to run to not grow weary. You've got to walk to not grow faint. You've got to spread your wings like an eagle to soar like an eagle. And he took great inspiration from this. He felt that this was a message that came to him from looking at this picture and these words came to his mind and he actually heard from his own words we can take that he heard God saying his name and I think that's, um, you know, I, I would just make the observation that if religion weren't fairly widespread and fairly orthodox, we would say that someone who was hearing voices and who was relating to a, a you know, a, a, pre, a presence that no one else could see, we we would have some concerns about the balance of that person. On the other hand, Mark, we give people who engage in religion a lot of slack. We know that... <laughs> That's what I'm we, saying. Well, yeah. we No, no, no. But I'm saying the, the general public does that, right? Yeah. So, okay, so you, you believe or whatever that the earth was created in so many days, but we don't... Um, in, in, we, we probably mark people up too for mm. at least believing in something. Yeah, and, for and having a moral e- code that yeah, we can understand. We yeah. don't expect them to to literally uh, hold to things or if it's a private matter, we sort of mm. regard it as okay. It might do well for him. I mean, his instincts haven't been bad No, his so instincts, far. no, that, that's absolutely right. Now, let, let's turn to the budget just because it's it's less than a week away as we record this. And it has changed quite a lot, hasn't it? Um, the economy has done a lot better than we thought it would do. The jobs market is extraordinarily buoyant. Um, the government is now shifting to a you know jobs first approach. Uh, it's not going to be winding in the deficit. The deficit's finding itself wound in anyway from a soaring iron ore price and from this buoyant jobs market. It's a complete reversal of everything the coalition uh, has uh, stood for, really, mm. which is. Uh, Budget discipline, they have an opportunity to wind the deficit back, to cut the budget debt, you know, which is big. But they've chosen instead to, now that they have an opportunity, and we spoke about this on a podcast, Mark, a little mm, while ago, yeah. now that they have an opportunity. I'm glad they were listening. <laughs> they may have been. Now, now that uh, the Treasurer has an opportunity, uh, 
he's decided to come out of this with something, and that is a much lower unemployment rate. We haven't had, and his target is for an unemployment rate of between 4 and 5%. We haven't had this consistently since the days of, and you're an expert on uh, coalition prime ministers, Maria, but uh, since the days of in order, uh, Menzies, Holt, uh, Gordon, uh, McMahon, I suppose you can get McEwen in there too because they, they change prime ministers every few years. At the, McEwen only <laughs> did 23 days or something. That's right. <laughs> um, but he's still got his statue at Bathurst. Yeah, but, yeah. And so he's it, getting one around the lake. Yeah, no, that's statue other... Bendigo, I think. But, um, uh, yeah, in Canberra. So this is a far more ambitious goal than uh, Labor under Wayne Swan as treasurer or anyone ever had. It comes from the treasurer. And the Treasury, uh, obviously, the Prime Minister has embraced it. The, the, the budgets are really like uh, the State of the Union address in, in the US, although that's given by the President. Ours is, for historical reasons, given by the Treasurer. But it's really nothing to do with the budget. <laughs> so if you look at the, the, the legalities, as I have in a column in the conversation this week, if you look at the legalities Keep your eye of the budget, out for that. Yes, if, you, if you look at the realities, um, the budget uh, formally, the budget bill, uh, which is you know the title of the budget speech, the appropriation bill, can't deal with tax, doesn't, by the Constitution. Those measures can't be in it. It is an appropriation bill. It can't deal with most appropriations because most of them are ongoing, most Medicare and spending and uh, spending on grants to states and everything continues regardless, a good thing too. Um, it only deals with the payment of public servants. The budget itself is a very limited uh, thing, but we have, I guess, built on it. It's accreted, it's grown bigger, it now has economic forecasts out four years. It used to have economic forecasts out less than one year in, in the 1980s. So it's grown to become this statement of values and a statement of values that you can put numbers on, mm. which is very important. So we will see how important it believes aged care is yeah. compared to defence, we will see how important it believes mental health, which will also respond uh, to the inquiry into that as well, how important it believes those things are. The budget is a statement of values and values and, and, you can count on. And the women's on. budget as well, or the women's issue. Yeah, you know, and the is... extent to which that is, as the last women's statement watch, which was embarrassing to look at, you know, a mere sort of uh, puffery just, just to fill out 50 or so pages. So um, we'll see that and... In the first clear statement of values, it is that Frydenberg, when he has the opportunity to consider what he's done in his time in Treasury, does not want to be the person who said, I left the job after all of this disruption with unemployment still as high as it was before. He wants to be the person that says, I left the job with the unemployment rate beginning with four right? Something it hardly ever has done, mm. maybe getting down into the low fours. That is to say, the budget is uh, a statement of intent. It's a statement of intent which can be taken seriously because it has numbers put on it. There's nothing else like it in Australia. The Prime Minister doesn't do an annual address. The Prime Minister doesn't set out... Um, you know, what the government's intentions are in uh, in a regular and holistic way, this is it. Mm. That is why the event on Tuesday with all of the rigmarole of the speech, you know, reporters locked up and something, that is why it matters. 
And the treasurer is fully aware of this and that is why he, talking about Scott Morrison, you know, saying what he wants to be judged by to the conference that he wouldn't uh, release a transcript of his speech to, this is the treasurer saying very clearly with the support of the prime minister um, what he wants this government to be judged by. And by the way, it is not what many of his predecessors, do you remember, um, of course you do, uh, the beginning of the Abbott government and uh, Joe Hockey, his mm. first budget speech ended dividing Australia into lifters and leaners, who yeah. we supported and leaners who we didn't. That was a statement of values. This one will be important. Yeah, well, Maria, it's going to be quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, the two things uh, I'd be, I'd like to get your reflections on. Uh, one is the closeness between uh, Frydenberg and Morrison. It seems that they are extraordinarily close, both as Prime Minister and Treasurer, but also Frydenberg is the Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party. And there's far less tension between these two than has been the case between leaders and deputies or and even leaders and treasurers in the past. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. And also, I suppose, in the context of what Peter was just saying, I guess you'd say, I certainly would say, that Frydenberg is the heir apparent. If if uh, if the coalition were to lose the next election, for example, or if Morrison were to leave in some other for some other reason, I think uh, Frydenberg would be uh, the most likely replacement. And going back to our previous uh, conversation, you know, he's a person of of, of Jewish uh, faith, so that 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 would be a, a new thing for Australia as well. Well, yeah, I think that would be a, a first for Australia, if I um, if I remember correctly. I think Isaac Isaacs was the first sort of high profile figure. And he was the Governor General, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, back in the in the thirties, which was controversial. And he may have been the first Australian. Governor-General as well. Yes, he was actually. He was. There was a two-for-one yeah. deal there. Um, look, I mean, I guess the, the relationship with Scott Morrison and Frydenberg, I mean, it speaks to the fact that they obviously get along as humans, um, but but also to the reality that they haven't actually um, been interacting for very long together um, and probably not in opposition, right, where a lot of these enmities yeah. really do um, form. Um I think what is, uh, I guess, an interesting thing to kind of ask is kind of goes to, to Peter's first point about uh, the historic nature of unemployment being that low, right? Like is how, how is the government intending? It's not yet. The Treasurer has made a deliberate decision to force it low using unprecedented, well, what was previously unprecedented government decision, uh, government spending. So, I mean, that, that makes me think, you know, does that mean that they're going to take um, reforming, uh, you know, job training systems seriously, so they, they're not just gamed, so those agencies can can take a fee um, by placing people who will probably find work, but not really assisting those who are difficult to employ? Is this because they don't expect migrants to be coming? I mean, how else are they going to achieve this? Yeah, well, the, the, the absence of migrants is interesting, isn't it? Well, that, that'll also be one of the things in the budget. There, there'll be an indication of their intentions through their forecasts yeah. in that regard. They're being helped also, Maria, by a massive surge in the iron ore price, and it's quite fascinating to think that we have not been in a place of seeing the sort of sabre-rattling about Beijing uh, ever before. I mean, it is at it is at its highest level. I think, and you would say simultaneously, the relationship, the bilateral relationship, is at its lowest level that anyone can remember. And yet, 
the iron ore price is what is leading this massive uh, recovery in the budget, $31 billion turnaround on the basis of a higher iron ore price. Iron ore price is north of 180 US yeah. dollars a tonne. In the, the main, budget, the main, it was going to be 55. Exactly. And the main customer the is China. Budget. The main customer is China. Yeah, but I that's mean, only because Brazil has uh, has been hit by uh, mine collapses mm. and by uh, coronavirus. Um China's doing everything it can. Let's put it this way. If China has a choice of where to buy it from, it's probably not likely to be Australia. So well, that's one of the reasons. a lot of it at the moment. Yeah. 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 They've got no choice. So, yes, I mean, uh, with with such an ambitious goal around un- unemployment, this may be a, you know, I mean, like the, the policy setting that framed that in the, in the 60s was full employment, which was driven by mm. Keynesian, um, you know, supply, uh, spending. Um, from from government coppers and and managing the economy like quite directly like I'm not suggesting that the government's intending to do that. I think it is. I mean, I, I think they're very definitely embracing uh, Keynesian economics quite quite straightforwardly. And their plan is to essentially grow out of debt, isn't it? I mean, to grow the economy out of relative debt. And uh, the governor of the Reserve Bank is reported today as being on the cusp of, of announcing that he thinks unemployment w- will reach full employment, which is around that sort of middle four range or a bit lower um, of jobless uh, in the next two years. But he's sticking with, as I understand it from the report I read, he's still sticking with his prediction, I guess that's all it is, it's not a pledge, but his prediction that the mortgage rate will remain at the kind of low it's at at the moment, the official interest rate, until 2024. So, I mean, it's such a... Well, well that, that's because what we've discovered is that the, the sort of um, standard relationship between unemployment and wage rises, as everyone knows, just just hasn't budged. Yeah, it's, so, it seems so like people aren't getting wage rises and that that's enabling us to, to push unemployment down much further. Now, that's, I was going to say something else, but I won't go on. All right. Well, that's all right, because I think we're going to have to uh, wrap it up there. We've been running quite long, and uh, I know that both you and I have to get off to go to a, a budget function as it is. So, um, Maria Teflaga and Peter Martin, thanks so much for being with us again on Democracy Sausage. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you. I'm looking forward to budget night. Uh, yes, yeah, so am I, because it means coming out of the lockup, which I'll be in as well. That's it for this week. We'll be going back to one podcast a week from now on, perhaps with the odd extra now and then. So until this time next week, which will be – actually, it won't be this time next week. It'll be just a fraction later because we're going to wait till after the budget uh, to uh, to do the podcast next week just so we have the, the benefit of uh, seeing what it is that the government has actually announced. So until then, so long and thanks for all the fish. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.